Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, let's do this. Let's open Habakkuk chapter 1, and in just a moment I'm going to read and catch us up a little bit. We're going to work on verses 12, starting in chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verses 5. But before I do that, let me pray and just ask the Lord to help us. And let me pray for our military and Reynolds is, and Keith and the guys as they're finishing up their little jaunt across Georgia. Um, Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Will prayed so well just a moment ago about your kindness to us as a nation and, and um, how in your providence you've given us much. We remember Jesus' words that to whom much is given, much is required. So I pray, Lord, that Uh, we would never allow the freedom that you've given us as a nation and us as people in particular, as part of Crosspoint Church, to dead end on us. But that it would be a means by which we make much of the name of Jesus. In particular, we thank you for our soldiers and uh, sailors and Marines and airmen who are, even as we speak in harm's way, defending uh, the cause of liberty against terrorism. We pray for a speedy end to those conflicts, and we pray, Lord, for our soldiers to be able to come home quickly and safely. We pray for President Obama. We thank you for him, and we pray that you'd give him and our military leaders wisdom. Pray for the young men in this church that are even now serving and going through the very rigorous training of Ranger School. We pray that you'd give them endurance. Lord, we thank you for the men in this church Reynolds and Keith and Terry Cole and Jimmy Brooks and John Teeple and a few others that, especially Reynolds and Keith, as they're running the whole way across Georgia. Pray, Lord, in these last few miles that you'd give their joints strength and that we pray that their, their efforts would raise much awareness to help bless some of these veterans that have uh, sacrificed much to serve our country. And, that they might have good housing. Lord, now we turn our attention to this beautiful book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament that has much to say to us. I pray, Lord, that you would focus our hearts, that you'd give us wisdom and humility as we think about some of the lessons that we can learn from the verses that we'll read today. I pray that Christians would be encouraged. I pray that people that have come into this room that have not yet trusted in you whether they think they have or whether they realize that they're not Christians. I pray that you would do the greatest miracle of all and give them a new heart, that you would cause them to pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. Give them the gift of faith so that they can trust and see and look to Jesus and put their hope in him. I pray these things, Lord, for your glory, for the joy of your people, for the salvation of the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Habakkuk chapter 2, or I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 12. But before I get there, let me just catch you up to where we have been, where we got to last week. And I think even before that, maybe just a, a bit of just abbreviated sort of summary of the Old Testament, just to sort of orient us to where we are. So we know that the Bible begins with the book of Genesis, which is primarily dealing with the creation and then God forming a people. So he creates the world and everything in it. And these two people, Adam and Eve, and, and they rebel against God in the garden. And then begins this cycle after Genesis 3 
of God dealing with his people. And then, in fact, in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, he calls a man, Abraham, and through this man, Abraham, calls to himself a people. Not because he was just going to deal with this one people, Abraham and his descendants, which becomes the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, because they were particularly noteworthy or they were better than other people, but because through this people, God wanted to display his nature and his holiness and his goodness to all people, to all who would call upon his name. And so the rest of Genesis is this account of God dealing with Abraham and his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. And at the end of Genesis, we find where this son, Joseph of Jacob, has become the prince, sort of the governor of Egypt, and is in a strategic position to be able to rescue his people from famine in their land. And they were in this land that God had given them, the land of Canaan, but yet they were, because of their disobedience, famine had come, and now they're finding themselves in Egypt, being rescued by their brother, Joseph, who they had sold into slavery. And so the book of Genesis ends, and the book of Exodus begins with God's people being in Egypt because of famine outside of the land that God had promised to them. And then very shortly, Joseph passes away, and the leaders that were more friendly to God's people in Exodus pass away, and all of a sudden you go from being a guest that's being fed to being in bondage, and that's where we find ourselves in the book of Exodus at the beginning. And God raises up this deliverer, Moses, who leads his people out of captivity, out of Egyptian bondage. Of course, we all know this story. Most of us that have uh, been around Christianity for a while, where God leads his people through the Red Sea, parts the waters, causes them then to go uh, through the Red Sea, and then causes the waters to crash on Pharaoh's army. And in a sense, this is really a picture of salvation. People, Israel, is in bondage, just like we are in bondage to sin. And through no effort of their own, God rescues them miraculously by causing them to pass through the Red Sea. Well, God's people are rescued, they're saved, but they wander in the desert. God gives them his law on Mount Sinai in the form of the Ten Commandments through Moses, the lawgiver. But even though they've been saved and even though they've been given God's way for their good, they still continue to flounder and wander in the desert for 40 years. Finally, Moses dies and he rises up, raises up another leader, God does, named Joshua. And then Joshua finally leads God's people back into the promised land that was intended for them. And that's Joshua. Joshua leads them back across the Jordan River into the Canaan land. But since that time, many foreigners and people that shouldn't be there have occupied the land. And so much of the book of Joshua is Joshua and his armies evicting, kicking the people out, conquering the foreign armies that should not have been there. Not because God doesn't love all people, because, but at this time, in the redemptive storyline of God's dealing with the world, he is still purifying for himself this Old Testament people, the nation of Israel, whereby he would become a light to all the nations. So Joshua ends with them renewing this covenant, cleaning out the promised land. And then the people are now led by a series of judges, and they're mostly terrible. You read the book of Judges, it is a, it's, it's, it's pretty rough. I mean, stuff, bad stuff happens. People get chopped up and sent to far corners of the country and all sorts of immorality. Finally, at the end of Judges, things are so bad, people demand a king like the other nations. And so God gives them a king, Saul, and he does pretty poorly. And then God raises up this shepherd boy, David, who becomes this Old Testament picture foreshadowing Jesus. And David is a great king, but even he has flaws. And then David's son, Solomon, comes to the throne, and he does pretty good, but he has 
a lot of flaws as well. And then after Solomon, there's this period of divided kingdoms between the, the, the tribes in the north, which is Israel, and the tribes in the south, which is Judah. And that's then where we have first and second kings. And I counted this the other, the other day as I was studying for this message. There were 43 kings in the history of Israel. And when I say Israel, I'm talking about both Israel, the northern, and the southern Judah. 43. Only like five or six of them were good. About five or six of them were like mediocre, and the other 30 were terrible. And so, so I mean, be encouraged about kind of the state of American politics. God still works with his people, regardless of whether we have good presidents or bad presidents. And that's no commentary on our current president, by the way, because I know some of you are just, say something. No, I'm not. <laughs> anyway, you guys know I told you, disclaimer, I, can't get, I, get, a little, I get a little feisty when it comes to election time. Um, but vote. Be involved politically. Vote two or three times if they'll let you. <laughs> and so God then deals with this divided kingdom. And then at the end of the New Testament, we see the, this foreign army come and conquer God's people. And then they get conquered by another group of people. And then eventually they get conquered by the Romans, which then brings us to the beginning of the New Testament. Okay, so first then the Syrians and the Babylonians conquer these two kingdoms, and then eventually they get conquered by Persia, and then we have this 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, where Rome becomes the world power, and then Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew. So where we are right now in Habakkuk, remember, is we're right at the end of this time of the divided kingdoms, and God is saying to Habakkuk, as Habakkuk is complaining really to God, venting his frustration about the immorality that he sees within Judah, within God's people, the southern kingdom of all of Israel. He is really complaining to God about his own people's unrighteousness, remembering what God had promised him, that through them they would be a light to all these nations. And Habakkuk is looking at his nation and saying, how can we be God's people and how can God use us if, if there's so much in unrighteousness within us? the camp, so to speak. And so we're at the end of that time of the kings when God is answering Habakkuk's prayer and he's actually saying to Habakkuk, he's, he's, he's prophesying to Habakkuk really that what's going to happen is these foreign armies, specifically the Babylonians or the Chaldeans as they're mentioned in this particular version of the Bible that I'll read out of, are going to come and smash you and conquer you as a punishment. So, 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 Habakkuk complains, God answers him, but he doesn't really give him the answer that he wants. Think of it this way, and this is, no analogy is perfect, but it would be like if a group of Christians said today, God, certainly you want to bless America, certainly through America has been a force of much good to promote the gospel, but look at us now in 2012, God. Look how immoral we are. Look at our government. Look at the things that we authorize. Look at the things that we condone, God. God, will you come and raise up righteousness? Will you come and punish the wicked within America? Will you raise us up to be a righteous nation again? God, do this for the sake of your name. And it would be like God answering us if we were in the place of Habakkuk and saying, oh, I'll answer your prayer. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up North Korea or Iran or the Taliban to come smash you. And that's the dilemma that we find ourselves in after we read last week. Habakkuk complains, 
God answers and said, I'm answering your prayer, Habakkuk, but not the way you think. I'm raising up the Chaldeans or read the Babylonians to come smash you. Whoa. So now we find ourselves in verse 12. So let's read. I'll make a few points along the way. And then I think there's three things in particular that I think we can learn from as we look at this text today. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. Habakkuk has just received the news that God has answered his complaint, but he's answered it by telling him that he's going to raise up this bitter and hasty nation, the Chaldeans, to punish them. And in verse 12, Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Listen to this. Even though he's been rocked with this news, he still has pretty good theology. He still understands pretty well the sovereignty of God. O Lord, you have ordained them, meaning this enemy, the Chaldeans, as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. And so it's almost like Habakkuk is, you know, when you're like in a negotiation and you, want to, you don't quite understand what somebody else is saying, you sort of repeat their answer back to them. I think Habakkuk is sort of doing that. He's processing this. So let me, let me get this straight. But, but even as he's getting it straight, he's repeating back what God has just said to him, and he's really affirming God's utter sovereignty in this situation. Remember how last week we said, if you were here, I said that God is sovereign over the nations. Proverbs 21.1, he, he, he works the king's heart in his hand like a, a water course that he can direct whichever way he wants. And Habakkuk realizes that. In verse 13, he says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and can, cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors, meaning the Chaldeans, and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And so, so we have a new dilemma now for Habakkuk. His dilemma in the first 11 verses, or really in the first four verses when he prayed at the beginning of the book, his dilemma was the unrighteousness within God's people, right? That's what he's complaining about there. Like, God, aren't you going to do something about this? And now God answers and says, yes, I'm going to do something about this, but I'm going to bring these Chaldeans, who are even more wicked than you, to punish my people for their wickedness. And now Habakkuk has a, a sort of second complaint. God, how can you cause somebody that's even more wicked than us to be your instrument of righteousness? Basically what he's saying is, is God, I get you, but the cure that you've offered is actually worse than the disease. And then he continues in verse 14 with a description of these Chaldeans. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. So he's now kind of going to this sort of, this sort of poetic description of the state of God's people. They're like fish. God, you made us this way. We're so stupid we don't even know. Put bait on the hook, we bite it. We're just dumb fish. And verse 15, he, meaning the Chaldeans, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. So what he's saying here, I realize that's maybe poetic Old Testament prophet-like language, and so we're not used to reading like it. So what's he saying? He's saying essentially to God, God, you have made us helpless and vulnerable. We're like fish. They're swimming around, like in a, like in a little you know, like those stocked ponds that you take your kid to, and all you got to do is put a little piece of baloney on the end of it, and, you know, you, you, you could catch fish blindfolded. That's what you've made us like, God, like dumb fish in a stocked pond. 
And, and you've made these Babylonians, these Chaldeans, these arrogant fishermen who after they catch all these fish because you've made us so vulnerable, not because they're particularly skillful, but because you've made us vulnerable, then they sacrifice, they sort of worship their nets. So what's even, what makes it even more aggravating is that the Chaldeans, who are your instrument, God, seem to be completely unaware of the fact that they are merely a pawn in your chess game. I mean, at least if you're going to use them as an instrument of your justice for us, can you at least sort of cause them to enter into this with a little humility, kind of like the arresting officer that doesn't really want to do it, but just sort of knocks on your house to serve a Sabina and says, hey, I, I really don't want to do this, but i got to arrest you. Like, God's in control here, so let me, just, let me just kind of wipe you guys out. At least show a little humility. But they're not even doing that. It makes it even tougher, doesn't it? And that's the particular, I mean, can you feel like the helplessness and the frustration and the angst that Habakkuk feels? And one of the reasons why this is happening certainly is because this is unfolding God's redemptive plan, pointing us towards the cross, but much lower down the list, but very important, I think, to you and me is to, to help us realize that God is acquainted with our frustration when he doesn't seem to hear us. Verse 16. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. Doesn't even realize that God's doing this. And makes offerings to his dragnet. So this is the Chaldeans, who are pawns in God's chess game, who are so ignorant, they don't even realize that they're being used by God, and they're just rejoicing in their own strength. For by them, he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I mean, just think about the lament and the sorrow and the frustration that Habakkuk feels. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, this is what Habakkuk says. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, meaning God, will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Sounds a little chippy, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, all right. If that's the way it's going to be, I'm going to take my post on the city gates, and I'm going to see what God's going to do. I don't know. I mean, in one sense, I'd say, hey, Habakkuk, hey, tone it down just a tad. We're talking to God here. But in another sense, I actually kind of, I kind of respect him. In fact, I I would even go to say his, his, sort of his vigor here is a little bit, is, is, is commendable. Because he's, he's not sort of, he's not sort of tucking his tail and running and avoiding it. I don't know if you're like this, I am. But when I suspect bad news, I tend to not want to hear it or engage it. I think that's why a lot of men don't go to the doctor. You know, you just kind of... No, I don't, I mean, just, gosh, if I go to the doctor, I might actually get bad news. And so we just don't. I mean, that's as if that makes the bad news go away. Or, or maybe there's some sort of difficult relational thing, and if we just kind of avoid it. Like, don't you, do you am, I the, am I the only one that struggles with this? Or is that, you guys are looking at me like, I'm sorry, I'm completely <laughs> unfamiliar with what you're talking about. I, <laughs> okay, I'll just, I'll just, uh, yeah, I'll just wallow out here on this island and let you know about my emotional <laughs> weakness. But, but like, come on, there's this thing in us where sometimes like, oh, there's this relational thing. We've got this hard conversation to have. There's this 
little thing between us and a person, so we kind of we kind of kind of keep them at arm's length, or when we talk to them, we sort of keep the conversation sort of light and sort of, you know, not getting close to that area that might be particularly sensitive. But Habakkuk, even though he's a little rough around the edges and a little chippy with the creator of the universe, I kind of appreciate his, his earnestness, like his grittiness. He's saying, okay, I, I complained once and I got bad news. I complained a second time and, and, and now I, I'm not going to cause this to, to create any sort of hitch in my spirit or timidity or avoidance. I'm going to sit on a gate. And I'm going to stand up on the tower. And I'm going to wait until God says something. I don't know. I, I kind of respect that because I think it's just it's sort of tough. There's this sense that Habakkuk insists on dealing with things as they really are. And I can respect that. And then in verse 2, this is what the Lord says. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Let's stop there. What is this vision? It's probably referring to what we're going to handle in a couple weeks in Habakkuk chapter 3, where we have this beautiful picture of, and it's really this prayer of Habakkuk, where he is recounting God's faithfulness to his people over the centuries. And so I think what this vision is that the Lord answers him to look at and make plain is this history of God's faithfulness to his people. And he tells Habakkuk to write this down, to make it plain on, t- on tablets so he may run who reads this. And I think the sense here is, is that he's telling Habakkuk to make it so clear that even a person who is running by, that they can look at it and see the meaning. And I don't think a lot of times this verse is, I think, sometimes taken out of context and it's saying that if you have a vision, you know, that you should make it clear to the people that you're leading so that they can then grab that vision and run with it and sort of be productive. Well, that certainly may be true. I, I'm not saying that's not a good leadership uh, 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 quality or thing to do. But I don't think that's what Habakkuk, this verse is saying here. I think, first of all, this, this vision is, is, is about the greatness of God and his history with his people. But what he's saying to Habakkuk in the sense of let it be so that people can run with it is that make it so clear and simple so that even people that aren't really paying attention that may just be sort of walking by or running by can look at it and it's so clear, kind of like a billboard that is so big and so huge that even if you're going 95 miles an hour down to the interstate, when you see that billboard, it's clear what the vision is of God's faithfulness. And that's what he tells Habakkuk there to do. And then we continue in verse 3, and he says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So, okay, remember, this is God speaking to Habakkuk. He's saying, I'm going to show you something. And we, we know we have the benefit now of having this already written down for us, I'm going to show you something, which we think is probably this vision, this prayer, this picture of God's faithfulness that Habakkuk is going to give us in chapter 3 in a couple weeks. But he's saying, if it seems slow, wait for it. It's coming. It surely will come. It will not delay. And then in verse 4, God tells him something that I think is just the centerpiece of the whole book. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up, meaning the enemies of God, the Chaldeans. It is not upright within him, but the righteous 
shall live by his faith. In other words, the people who trust God, trust God because of his character, and even in the darkest of times, look forward to God being good to them. And then verse 5, he then again turns back to these Chaldeans, and he says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has, he, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And so God has told Habakkuk to wait for this vision that he's going to give him. And he then says that his people live by faith and trust in God even when they don't see God moving, which is exactly where Habakkuk is. So there's three things in conclusion that I think we can learn from this passage today. The first is, is that much of the Christian life involves waiting. Much of the Christian life involves waiting. In fact, uh, I think a majority of the Christian life involves waiting. And here's the deal about this waiting. It's, <laughs> it's rarely sort of a sweet sort of kumbaya waiting. It's rarely like candles in the background with pillows and sitting Indian style, which I can't even do because I'm not flexible enough anyway, but, you know, sitting there singing kumbaya with a bunch of encouragement around you, a little instrumental music going on in the background, and, you know, angels from here. As they're mentioned in Hebrews, ministering spirits coming, whispering sweet nothings in your ear to encourage you in the Lord. It's waiting for God is rarely like that. This waiting is often full of angst and stress and anxiety, which I think are intended to drive us to God. And that's right where Habakkuk is. God, are you really going to do this? See, this hasn't happened yet. The Babylonians, the Chaldeans haven't yet. This is something that's in the future that God has told them that's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. And so he's waiting for this undesirable outcome. And then once that happens, he's going to have to wait for God to eventually show his faithfulness to his people. And, and so Habakkuk is in this period where he has to wait. And God tells him, the vision, the goodness, my faithfulness is coming. Await for it. It's a point of time. It may seem slow, but it will not delay. It will come. Listen, I, I think being able to delay gratification is one of, the, one of the true signs of Christian maturity. And I think we as Americans are particularly terrible at it. In fact, I was sitting the other day in my bed, in my living room, wanting to watch the... Uh, last night, in fact, it was. It was the seventh game of the basketball game, the Boston Celtics and the Philadelphia 76ers, which I don't even really care about. I mean, it's just on. It's just like mindless sports on TV, right? And so the batteries are going a little bit dead in our remote control. And I turn on the TV. I know it's somewhere in the mid-fourth quarter. And um, I turn on the TV, and it was like Jennifer been watching. So it was on like HGTV or some channel or something like that or Lifetime Movie Network or something like that. And so I had to change it to whatever channel the basketball game was on. But because the batteries are a little dead, it was slow going from the channel that was on there to what I wanted to watch. And there was a time there where the screen is on this decorating show and I could see the channel, ABC or ESPN, it was up, but like the, the signal hadn't. So there's, I mean, can you imagine this? There's a four-second lag. 
that I have to wait for to watch the Celtic Sixer game. The, I mean, come on! <laughs> what is this? I mean, we, we, do you realize how as Americans we are so prone to lack of patience, man? If we got to wait more than five seconds, I mean, the power went off at our house a couple weeks ago. I mean, I'm just brewing. This storm is calling diverse power every 30 minutes. Come on, man! I don't see any trucks on River Road. Let's go! I mean, I didn't say that, but that's what I wanted to say. God forbid that I have to endure a power outage for four hours. This is America! I mean, do you, you realize how ridiculous that is? And do you realize how, listen, do you realize how even blessings in life can turn into cursings when they make us impatient and selfish? And do you realize how, what a battle, what a spiritual fight we have as Americans just to wait on God, just to wait on Him. And I think one of the reasons Habakkuk is in the Bible, amongst many other reasons, way down the list, but one of the reasons Habakkuk is in the Bible to teach Americans in 2012 to relax and trust and look to God because God is in control. He's on his timeline and we can't wait for him. That waiting takes angst and frustration and anxiety, but that is not meant to, meant to drive us into self-absorption, but to trust in God. Secondly, and I think this is the heart of the book, so the first point is I think that we can learn that much of the Christian life involves waiting, and waiting for a teenager to come around, waiting, waiting for a husband to start leading, waiting. But the second thing that I think is just the heart of the book maybe is what he says to Habakkuk in verse 4, that the righteous shall live by faith. And then I'll add on to that, another part of that sentence, and can trust God even in the darkest of times. God is telling Habakkuk that justice will eventually come and evil will eventually be punished. Now, it may not come in Habakkuk's lifetime, but Habakkuk can be sure, and we can be sure, that God is just. In fact, the whole Old Testament is like one big object lesson, one big display of God's faithfulness. It's all pointing to the cross because every, every instance of justice in the Old Testament that God brings to rescue his people or to redeem his people it's always temporary. Do you realize that? I mean, the cycle of the Old Testament is God creates, God forms his people, he's good to his people, they rebel, and he calls them back to himself, and he renews them, and then they rebel again. So it's rebellion, renewal, rebellion, renewal, over and over. So, so even in the Old Testament, when God brings justice, and he brings goodness, and he conquers Israel's en enemies, he, even then it's it's always temporary because it's pointing towards the only true victory, the only true thing that we can put our faith in, which is Jesus in the New Testament, which is the cross. In fact, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, that verse that says the just shall live or the righteous shall live by faith becomes the center 
of Paul's argument in what is maybe the most important doctrinal book in the New Testament, which is Romans. In fact, he starts off his argument in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. He says that the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And so what this verse is in Habakkuk 4 is because it's pointing to the cross. And what Paul then later develops for us in Romans is not... This is not, Habakkuk isn't given the full gamut of this truth in Habakkuk 2 verse 4, but we are given the full, the full explanation of this truth in Habakkuk, in, in Romans chapter 3, where Paul says that we are made righteous by God. So see, we don't need to take away from this verse when we read Habakkuk chapter 2, the righteous shall live by faith. So here's what you need to do, Johnny and Susie. You need to be more righteous. You need to try harder. You need to buckle up, you need to cinch up your belt, you need to grit your teeth, and you need to do better. That's not the message of the Bible when we look at the full redemptive storyline. See, we have the benefit of 2,600 more years of God's unfolding plan, and we see what Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is pointing towards, which is what Paul then fully unfolds for us in Romans, which is that God makes dead people alive, he gives them a new heart, and he makes them righteous, not because of anything that they have done, but because of what Jesus has done in his righteousness, in his life, and through his death, atoning for their sin, absorbing God's wrath and punishment, and then coming back to life, now vindicating the fact that he's God, now able to give life and resurrect dead sinners so that they too can be righteous in him. And so the message of Habakkuk, the message of Romans, the message of the whole Bible is trust in what God has done in Christ on the cross and by trusting in his act there on the cross, in his death and his burial and his resurrection, you can have faith, Christian, that even in the darkest of time, God has fully and finally vindicated himself and his people by atoning for all injustice on the cross. And so the righteous now can live by faith and can trust God even in the darkest of times because we know that once and for all he settled the equation. He settled evil. He's atoned for it in our lives and in the lives of people who sin against us by Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross. And he's made people righteous by Jesus' gift of life and faith. So, friends, just before we move on to the final point, how do you become a Christian? Well, not by trying to be righteous. Not by mustering up faith. You simply become a Christian by, by looking to Jesus. And here's the really good news that makes this gospel so incredibly free and full of grace is, even the faith that he requires of you to look to Jesus whereby you become righteous, even that's a gift, right? So, so do you have ears to hear? Do you have a heart to believe it? Well, if you do, that's an indication that God is, is giving you the gift that he requires of you. That, that's how free and how beautiful the gospel is. God doesn't say, trust in Jesus, now go find some trust. He gives you trust. He gives you a new heart. Do you hear that? If you're hearing that, that's hitting your heart right now. I think that's a very good indication that God is literally resurrecting you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And you don't need to muster up any evidence of your relative goodness. 
You need to simply look to Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, friends. Turn away from your sin and look to Jesus. And, and friends, if you can do that right now, I, I believe that that means that God is giving you a new heart. And that's how good the gospel is. He doesn't require something of you to go find or prove. He gives you the very thing he requires. Isn't that grace? Oh, gosh. But a question may come up, and this is our third point. It's okay. I, I'm tracking with you, Brad, that he has fully and finally handled all injustice and evil on the cross. And I can point back to that and have faith in God because I know that even in my darkest days, even if I die, even if I get run over by a bus or find out in a week or two that I have cancer or something terrible happens to me, I know that life is not just these 80 or 90 years. I know that life is immortal, is forever with Jesus. And so I can have faith in Christ even in the darkest hour. But why, why would he even... I mean, if he's fully and finally conquered evil on the cross, why, why this time still where we have to wait for the ultimate reality to unfold? And I think that's the heart of the third point that I want to bring out, in that God shows mercy. God shows mercy. He shows mercy on Israel in the Old Testament. He shows mercy on people even today by delaying justice or delaying their punishment, delaying death. Sometimes we think, we look at some particularly evil act, maybe in the current events or the news, and we say, God, why don't you judge that? That man that did that to that family or that, that horrible man that did that or this country that did, God, why don't you just come down and smoke them and just, just bring justice in that situation? When you think about it, friends, if we step back from it, if God were to react on the spot to every situation that needed justice, friends, then who among us could stand? I mean, see, we look at that equation as if we're perfectly righteous, right? And so if God were going to respond right then to everything that he needed to punish, then, then, as David says in the Psalms, if the Lord were to count iniquities, who could stand? But I think what's happening when God allows evil to continue, even after the cross, is he is, in his kindness, delaying justice fully and finally. He's delaying, consummating the justice that he won on the cross. He's delaying the full realization of the justice he won on the cross merely as an act of mercy so that there might be time for more people to turn and trust in him. Let me read to you this really important passage out of Luke that I think will help us, and then we'll end on, on this. Luke chapter 13. Let me read this to you. Two different little situations that Jesus highlights. Luke chapter 13. It says that there were some present at that very time who told him, meaning Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So evidently, we don't know much. It's just kind of coming out of nowhere. There's these Galileans who are offering some sacrifices, and all of a sudden, Pilate comes and kills them too. Seems unjust, certainly is. Verse 2, and he answered them, this is Jesus speaking now. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
Then he goes on to another scenario. That was, we don't know much about this, but this is really all we hear about it in the Bible, but it's evidently a current event at the time of Jesus. This was kind of on the front page of the news probably recently. Verse 4, Jesus says, well, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so what Jesus is saying here is that there's these kind of two seemingly random events where Pilate just does this evil and kills these Galileans. So is he saying, are the Galileans, because maybe they were more sinful than the other Galileans, they kind of got punished? Jesus is saying, no. Something bad happened. Christian, let this be an opportunity for you to realize you need to repent while you still have time. And then he mentions this tower that fell on these 18 people and killed them. What, what, what's going on there? Do we need to divvy up justice? What's God doing there? He says, look, don't, you don't need to look down every little nook and cranny. You just need to know that the time is short. Something happened. It's terrible. Let this be something that causes you to examine your life and repent. And then he even whittles it down with this parable that I think will even explain it more fully. Here in verse 6, he says, And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Well, friends, there's lots going on in this parable, maybe symbolizing other things, but certainly one of the things that this parable that Jesus shares for us is to show us why God delays justice. So what's happening here is this, this man is coming to this tree, and he's saying, it's not bearing any fruit. Cut it down. It's no good. Bring justice. It's evil. It's no, not bearing fruit. And this tender, this vine dresser says, no, 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 no. Let's give, it, let's give it more opportunity to bear fruit. Let's dig around it. Let's water this thing. Let's put fertilizer on it. And let's give it another year to see if it will bear fruit. And so, friends, why, why does God delay justice? Why does God delay cutting down every tree? Because in his kindness and long-suffering, he's giving people, he's giving Chaldeans and Babylonians and Iranians and Taliban and Iraqis and Mexicans and Italians and Auburn fans and army people and navy people and American people and people from California and people from Georgia and people from Alabama and people from Canada and people from New York and people from little remote islands and people from Spain and people from Russia and people from Siberia and people from Afghanistan and people from Chile and Paraguay and Brazil and people from all over the world. He is delaying the time when he fully and finally realizes his victory in the hopes that some more will come and turn and trust in Jesus, friends. So as we look at evil in this world, we can be assured that God in withholding justice is really being merciful. So where are you in that equation? Are you a Christian that is struggling with whether or not God is listening? Friends, turn the tables on your own heart and say, God, you are being patient. You are patient with me 
and you're patient with this world. And if you're not a Christian, God is being kind to you that you're still alive and haven't died in your sins to be cast away from his presence forever. Will you trust in Jesus even now? Mom and dad who has a son or a daughter that's away from the Lord, oh, be encouraged. Be encouraged that he hasn't cut down the tree yet. He's digging a trench around. I believe God very well may be keeping them alive so that he will dig a trench around their life to pour in the fertilizer and the seed of the gospel so that they will turn and trust in him. Friends, you have that hope in the gospel. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is our hope is not in a rebellious child. Our hope is in the free grace of God who delights in saving sinners. Friends, Habakkuk is given not just to give us the story of God's people in the Old Testament, but to cause people in 2012 on Memorial Day weekend in Columbus, Georgia, to trust in God even in the darkest of times. So let's do that even now. Father, we do thank you for this prophet, for his grittiness. Lord, I pray that you'd make me more like that. Not sheepishly avoiding difficult things, but bold enough to be able to sit up on the tower in the city and say, God, I need to hear you. Good news or bad news, thing, something that I prefer or whatever it is, God, I need to hear you. And Lord, would you remind us of what you said to Habakkuk, that, that you are faithful, that you give your children righteousness and faith and all that they need to live by. That oftentimes we'll have to wait as we walk by faith that we can trust you even in our darkest hour. Lord, even as you withhold judgment and justice and death for maybe even people in this room, Lord, it may very well may, may be your kindness to them. And maybe even now you're breaking through their dead heart and giving them life so that they would see you. That they would cast off their hypocrisy and their secret sin or their just a really self-absorbed view of what it means to be a believer in God. And that today, maybe for the first time, they would trust in you because they realize that they need to turn away from their sin and trust in you because you've been kind and long-suffering and who knows when that year is up. God, would you do that? Would you cause somebody to, would you give them faith? Today, today for the first time, trust in you. And Lord, for us Christians in this room, Lord, would you encourage us? Would you encourage us by Habakkuk's words? And would we worship now and respond to your faithfulness? In Jesus' name, amen.